I'm Deirdre Latour, and this is Flack You, a podcast I started to take the flack back and tell the behind-the-scenes story about the world of reputation and communications in a divided and digital first world. On this episode of Flack You, lying. If you run communications at an organization, is lying in your job description? My guests are Jake Seward, Stephanie Cutter, and Tony Fratto. Jake Seward is the global head of communications for Goldman Sachs. He served as the White House press secretary during the Clinton administration and in the Treasury Department during the Obama administration. Jake is also the host of his own podcast, Exchanges from Goldman Sachs. Check it out. Stephanie Cutter is a political strategist that worked with Democrats, including Ted Kennedy, John Kerry, and Barack and Michelle Obama. She is also the co-founder of the communications firm Precision Strategies and a contributor on ABC News. Tony Fratto is a partner at the communications firm Hamilton Place Strategies and a contributor on CNBC. Tony was the deputy press secretary for George W. Bush and an assistant secretary in the U.S. Treasury. Appreciate you guys being here. I really wanted to do this episode on lying, mostly because I'm just so irritated that with everything from a communication standpoint. So I really wanted to do this. I mean, my view is that since the election in 16, the profession that we're all part of, has been maligned and altered in a lot of ways. And we can have that debate because that's the purpose of doing this together. Um, But it started way before Sean Spicer stood up and lied about crowd size, right? It was about how people ran their campaigns. It was about the, in air quotes, unusual way Kellyanne Conway did uh, interviews on television. And so I think it's really important to have some sort of thoughtful analysis from our perspective on how this has affected communications overall, both in private and public sector. And I just, there's a book on lying by a neuroscientist named Sam Harris that's like a really short book and it's really interesting. And so he defines it as to lies and to intentionally mislead others when they expect honest communication. The more a person's well being depends upon a correct understanding of the world, the more consequential the lie. And this is the part that I think is really meaningful for uh, today from his book. Big lies have led many people to reflexively distrust those in positions of authority. As a consequence, it is now impossible to say anything of substance on climate change, environmental pollution, human nutrition, economic policy, foreign conflicts, pharmaceuticals, and dozens of other subjects without a significant percentage of one's audience expressing paralyzing doubts about even the most reputable sources of info. Our public discourse appears permanently driven by conspiracy theories. And finally, an unhappy truth of human psychology is probably also work here, which makes it hard to abolish lies once they've escaped into the world. We seem to be predisposed to remember statements as true, even after they have been disconfirmed. So I think to start with the elephant in the room, because I have three experts on politics here from various parts of their life. Um, So Jake, what is the press secretary job today? Yeah, it's it's changed, obviously. I mean, it, it. I think the biggest change really is that the president is talking so often and so so um, so directly to the American people, and um, that was not a big problem or big challenge for me when I had that job in, in the late 1990s. The president would go out maybe once or twice a day, address maybe a specific issue. But he wasn't talking about everything all the time. And today, with the president's use of Twitter, the president is opining on topics as far-ranging as the National Football League and how it should handle um, its issue with the players and the anthem, to things he saw on cable news that morning, to serious matters of state. And so, so in a way, the people are getting a lot more transparency into what the president thinks 
And and he's sort of taken on the press secretary's role because in the past, a lot of that job was to explain, here's the White House position on this, here's the White House position on that. Um, and now it's more uh, a question of interpreting or helping uh, put context around um, what the president's been tweeting that day. So, Tony, what, what, do you, what do you think? You were close to that role as well. I think Jake... Uh... You know, outlined it well. I mean, that's. I think you have to. You do have to focus more on the president, right? But also the nature of the job. Uh, the nature of the job has changed. In this case, you have obviously a very unique spokesperson in the president, and so the press secretary's job ends up being making trying to make sense of it on a daily basis. And the, I don't know that it matters that it's Sarah Sanders that's who is the the press secretary today. Someone would have that job. And would have exactly the same challenges every day, and you know I think we would you know we'd go in and um, you know sometimes you have conversations with President Bush about about doing you know doing media and uh, talking you know talking to reporters, and there's always sort of this sense that like look if you if you if you address this, what shouldn't you address right? You, you talk about everything. Right? That's not a problem in this administration, right? We're going to talk about everything or anything in whatever way, and he's going to set the standard for what credibility is for their audience on that topic. Your job is to make sure you keep that whole for a few minutes or a day or so, right? That's about it. And then because we're going to move on to something else pretty quickly anyway. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a good point on on Sarah Sanders. I mean, do you think, Stephanie, I mean, it could really be anybody, right? Because how do you do that job for this president differently than she's doing it? Or could you? Well, I think you wouldn't last in the job. Right. I think the president right. wants a very specific type of person in that job. And I feel like we're kind of beating around the bush here and that that job is absolutely a reflection of who the president is. And this president lies. <laughs> There's no other way to state it. He lies. And it is the job of the press secretary to communicate the president's message and his policy positions. But when they're based on a lie, you have no choice but to repeat that lie or to shut down the conversation. So oftentimes in these press briefings, there is no information shared. It's just a continuous shutting down of the conversation. That job back in the day right? I'm looking at both Tony and Jake, was, uh, you know, a means of transparency to give people a window into their government. You're not necessarily just representing the president. You're representing the federal government. United States of America. That is, yeah. that is no longer the case. That is a wholly owned entity right now of Donald Trump. Right. I, I think, actually, I think uh, that, and that point is just, you know, really important is that, you know, Stephanie said, said it's lying, right? Like, a, you know, of course it's lying. I mean, there used to be a shocking kind of thing to say, but he does it about things that are, you know, sometimes big and sometimes things that are really small and easily verifiable. And it just is what it is. And, you know, if we were ever confronted with something that was a, that was a, you know, a misstatement or I don't think we've ever had to deal with you know, sort of intentional, really, of somebody going on and saying, I'm, you know, saying something that was, you know, we know is untrue. You know, you'd have to go out and deal with that and and explain it and put facts around it. There's always nuance and context that you can put around a, a point to explain what the thinking was that led to that, that misstatement. That's not the way it's handled here. It's handled in a way of simply just restating what the president said or putting it in the context of this is what the president believes. Right. So the, the, the construct of the president believes this. And that's all you have to say. 
right? You don't have to say. But isn't that Tony? Some of that is self-preservation, and I don't mean to keep your for job. For Sarah? For anybody, or, yes. Or anyone who would she's be She's the one in the job, job. right yeah, now. I don't it. want to pick on her personally, but she's the one in the job, right? So it could be Tony in the job. It's self-preservation to some degree in the sense that there's a lot of repeating what has been tweeted or said because you don't want to personally go on the record and say that the sky is green and the grass is blue, right? So isn't that some of it self-preservation for the long term as well? well or? For, for sure, but, but I don't even think there's explaining it, right? You just say... That's what the president said, and right. there's nothing. That's what he believes, and there's not nothing more to say about it, mm-hmm. right? The nothing more to say about it is like you may have lot. It's, it's just a signal. You may have lots of questions about this. There may be lots of chatter out there on social media them. and elsewhere, but I have nothing more to say to you on this topic. Is what happens, and it you is move a on. Technique. It's yeah. a technique yeah. that you see the person in this job who's currently doing it uh, to say, "I have nothing more." on that besides what the president tweeted this mm-hmm. morning. <laughs> and that's uh, her way of out of, out of uh, either repeating the lie or correcting the president. They just let those tweets sit. Yep. Jake, were you going to add something to that? Well, I was going to say, that, I mean, the, the biggest difference, though, is that the president is and, and, and is radically uh, transparent in a way. And he's letting you know what he thinks every single minute of the day. Not every single minute, but roughly. Eight or ten times a day, you're going to get a direct insight. That usually didn't happen. I mean, the president would appear in very staged uh, contexts. And and I think it is what Trump supporters like is that authenticity and the rawness of that voice. Now, we were all exposed to a little bit of that from the president's frustration at the press. But it was very rare that the public saw it because either they didn't have access to a Twitter account or by the time they got on the public stage, they toned it down quite a bit. They vented with staff. Vented with staff and then came out with a more scripted and more careful response. And so I think um, one of the things that I think people appreciate about this president is that rawness and unvarnished view of his opinion whether you believe it or not. Um, And so that's what is really radically different about the way he's doing this job and what's changed about the press secretary job is the press secretary really doesn't have much of a role other than to say, that's what he said. That's what he believes. So what else is there to say? In the past, that was the job of the press secretary to sort of interpret what policy was or if there was somewhat conflicting signals coming out of the White House, this is where we are at this particular point in time. And now you don't really need that because the president's doing it for you. On the flip side of that is that there used to be a lot more press conferences where the president would be held accountable by the media to what he's saying and held to some sort of a truthful account based on reality. There are less press conferences now because of this transparency. The president is telling you exactly what he thinks. It may not be based in fact or truth, but it is his version of reality. Um, And it gives this notion of transparency. He's not really giving people a window into the workings of the government or U.S. policy because his tweets aren't usually based in the reality so, no, of that. but in some way, it's a, sometimes it's a window that you kind of don't want to believe is true, it's, right? It's a window <laughs> where like the, the government come, the government, right, comes out with a policy on something that the president then questions as to why his government's coming out on this policy and says, we're going to reconsider it. And you would like to think that there should have been some disciplined policymaking process in there that involved the president. And maybe there was, and he just decided to change his mind when he saw what it looks like when it emerges into the public space. But so you actually kind of do get a window in, into it. Th- that yeah. is a window. Yeah. Absolutely. But Jake, but Jake makes a point about, I mean, you can be a raw, unvarnished 
strong leader, and there have been many throughout history, and still be truthful, right? I mean, you could say things in an aggressive way, in a strong yeah, I way, think, I in think a people can masculine way, but... No, and, and, and I think what people like is the authenticity, right? Yes, is, I agree is, with There's you. no question that that's what he's thinking, and it's not polished, it's not mediated through a press secretary, it's not a carefully scripted sentence, it's what he thinks. And so that's why I think the press have been... You know, and I think rightfully so, banging away at the White House to try to get more press conferences, but they're not getting a lot of traction with the public because the public thinks, God, I know too much about what this guy thinks every day. <laughs> I, I don't want to hear anymore. You know, I, I don't need I don't need more President Trump. I, I, I could use a little less. And so there isn't a real big clamor outside of the White House press corps. And I mean, I, I'm not I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but there isn't a lot of support for the idea that we need more. more. Is there um, any value at all to doing the press briefings anymore? I don't think so. Not in the way they're currently being handled. And just to to build on what Jake was talking about, there's no clamor for press conferences. But what is that based on? You know, if you look at any public poll um, over the last 18 months, he has a very, very high rate of people thinking that he's not honest. And that's based in something. That's based in his rhetoric and his record. So if he's not, if people don't think he's honest, why would they want to hear more from him? Yeah. So it's a both volume and it's content. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. So uh, the psychologist at Harvard, Steven Pinker, said that it's what he's done, and this is sort of building on Jake's point on the unvarnished, is, is really an emotional connection with his base, right? It's an emotional, visceral connection. So Pinker's point is he could literally say whatever he wants, and the emotional connection is so strong that it doesn't matter. So is that why he has license to lie as much as he does because of the emotional connection, do you think, Tony? I think that's right. I think it's much, much more about the emotional connection and the the theme of who he is as a president rather than the details on any one of the any any particular policy that he uh, espouses or whether it's uh, expressed in legislation that's moving or or not that's that's not the point of the presidency for him for his supporters um, and in fact when they see establishment Washington or the mainstream media angry with him they feel like he's doing he's doing the right thing because we're angry with them too and so if he's pissing them off then he's doing what we want and what what are these details that you're talking about about trade or nato you know i mean he'll say something about you know uh, you know came out in the woodward woodward book again or in his discussion with bob woodward about you know another 47 billion dollars that that came in on NATO, right? And it's like, well, we, we, I guess we could do another fact check on that to say, well, like, really, the money doesn't come into NATO and do all the details on that. They don't hear that. They couldn't care less than they do about the fact of what's happening to NATO. What they like is the theme of his presidency, which is to punch multi, you know, multi-nationalist uh, types in the face and to insist on action from others because we're being screwed by others and we need that you know some of that coming back that's the theme and he lives that theme all day every day well and the messaging is what p- other people have called not me it's not my phrase but nostalgia politics right the messaging is it's the again and make america great again right it was better than which is there there are dog whistles in the air for all sorts of 
um, race and gender and all sorts of things there. But it's it's everything was better then. Everything was better in the 50s when my dad was building buildings. And, you know, where was he? Long Queens. I forget where he built buildings. But that messaging is emotional. Right. It's all back to. So let's connect it back. Now, let's let's move on to sort of communications more broadly in the private sector to connect this, because it strikes me, having been at a uh, massive company for 14 years, that the fish rots from the head always. Right. So if the, the boss behaves a certain way. It sort of filters through the organization. And you're seeing this, I think, in on the political side because it's giving all these candidates the right to say all sorts of horrible things on the trail, right? So, I mean, how do you think this environment affects companies, Jake, like from a communication standpoint? Or does it not? Or, Well, I think if you go back, I mean, politicians have been dealing with a lot of distrust really since Vietnam and, and Watergate. Uh, and and rightfully so. I mean, the public stopped believing what politicians told them, and and most politicians have been operating in that environment for a long time and have learned to cope, right? And a lot of times that comes, what happens in politics spreads through the rest of society. It's sort of a leading indicator, for better for worse. And I think in the business community, really, I think the seminal events were like Tyco and Enron, where you had you know outright deception to significant public companies, and all of a sudden the business press, which went from sort of lionizing CEOs of these big companies to being much more aggressive in, in the way that the political press has been for years. It's not like there weren't investigative reporters before the the late 90s and, and early 2000s, but but, but I think the incentives changed, changed a lot. And so I think business has been dealing with this for a little while with that negativity and that, that cynicism around, um, and the financial crisis certainly made it worse, right? Because, you know, you had this crisis that started in a lot of different places, on Wall Street, Main Street, in Washington. But the corporations became a symbol for a lot of what went wrong in, in the country. And, and a lot of them didn't respond really um, in a transparent and open way uh, to what had happened. Um, so that made it worse. And the politicians did a better job of telling the story and putting the blame uh, on Wall Street, frankly, than, than anyone else did. So, so I think companies are living with that. Now, I think actually a lot of CEOs are getting the wrong message from the president. I've seen a couple instances of this where you could just go on social media and say whatever you think, whether it's true or not, and then try to make reality conform. And that's certainly not the lesson <laughs> that I would <laughs> encourage anyone that I've worked with to. But you see it a lot. And yeah. I think I think what I you're call it getting, a preschool communication strategy. You push me, I'll push you back on the playground. <laughs> and they, what, but, but they've been dealing with this. And, and it's a difficult environment when people don't trust you and don't believe you. And, you know, all of a sudden the tech companies, which had been sort of the shining lights, are getting questioned and, and getting tough questions. And no one likes that. It's not it's not a lot of fun necessarily. I think politicians are frankly better at dealing with it by and large because they've been doing it for Forever, and most of them grew up in that environment, um, and and corporates tend to be a little more touchy uh, about criticism and and that cynicism. But I think right now what you're seeing is some of them are watching the president, who is can be effective at times, uh, delivering at least a message to his core sure. audience, sure. and they're and they're sort of like trying to mimic him in some ways, which you know I don't think works in in a company setting because. You know, there are a lot more laws actually mm-hmm. governing, sure. uh, especially public companies. Yes, yeah, yeah. public yeah. companies yeah. when they talk, yeah. then there are laws governing politicians when they when they share yeah. the truth. And, and so, Elon so you, Musk just learned that right from right. tweeting. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's a lot. It's a lot trickier um, 
in, in that public company setting. But I think companies are still struggling with this new reality, with the explosion of social media, the many voices out there, the cynicism. Because they, you know, most of them grew up uh, in companies where you talk to the public four times a year in your quarterly or earnings Or twice statements. if you're European. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that was it. That was the yeah. bare minimum. Yeah. Sometimes that's about all they did. And if something major happened to the company, they might put out a press release. Now the world's changed a little bit, but that's the environment that most CEOs today grew up in. Yeah. Stephanie, do you think their CEOs are afraid? Do you think, or is there a mix, or what do you see? Well, I think that there there is a balance for especially public companies to be able to communicate in a way <laughs> that doesn't anger your shareholders or affect the markets. And uh, it's a careful balance. The other thing that I think for CEOs and, and corporate communications people is the really the lessons of Twitter. You know, for people who have been on campaigns, and Twitter hasn't been around that long, in 2008, we sent out, I think, a tweet on Election Day, and that was our first tweet. Mm-hmm. In 2012, yeah. it's amazing. It was a primary it. means of communicating with the media. In 2016, you saw Donald Trump <laughs> use Twitter to fuel his campaign, and you know there are things on Twitter that you have to pay attention to, and there's a lot on Twitter that you should not pay attention to. And learning that lesson is a corporate communications officer or as a CEO is really important because you cannot overreact to what that conversation is on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, I think the news cycle is so fast now, Tony, right? Really, it is a judgment call on sometimes, you know, someone would come in to me and I would just say like, you know, this is this matters really to only the four people in this room right now. Yeah, <laughs> like this yeah. will we got to ride it out. And by ride it out, I mean like four hours I think and then they're going to be on to something. Yeah, else. No, I think it's really challenging for I think it's really challenging for firms. I mean, there's I think it's hard to remember back in the day when all of the stakeholders that had an interest in the firm had fewer tools of communication, you know, that could mount a shareholder effort, you know, they're in the, you know, our proxy effort, you know, maybe, and that would get some attention or a whistleblowing employee would talk to the investigative journalist who would work on this long, you know, story. And, you know, these things still happen, obviously, but the tools available to deal with an event impacting a firm happening in, you know, just blindingly quick. And I remember a couple of years ago, it was H&M. This was in New York City. They had, um, uh, the story came out where postseason coats, apparently they were throwing these coats away. and But to throw them away, they had to damage the coats. It's a crazy thing, right? So, like, the manager here in New York City made some decisions, slashed the coats, they go into the dumps, dumpster. There's no one in the world that needs coats, right? Yeah. So they discover, this is a particularly cold winter, they discover the coats, and it's like, look at this, H&M is slashing coats and throwing away when we have had this cold winter and homeless people who could use coats, right? Wouldn't that be a better way to use it? Well, like, I mean, look, stupid happens everywhere. Like, so stupid happens. It took H&M 24 hours to respond to that when it was raging on Twitter, right? They were like, we have to gather the facts and figure out what happened and whatever. When it's like, the facts are, in fact, that the three or four of us, the four of us in this room would be like, yeah, we got to cop to this. This was minutes. stupid. It was yeah. dumb. Yeah, like, let's get this message <laughs> out. That yeah, was idiotic. We are donating. We have coats. Yeah. We have money. We're yeah. doing whatever, right? Yeah. It's happened, like, within the yeah, hour yeah. of learning of it. It took him 24 hours to respond to that. And 24 hours is like, that is a, it's over, right? It's over. You can't, you don't, you're not winning anymore. 
you're just making reparations after that. You can't win in any uh, event of stupid anymore. And so the um, ironic thing is, all the coats said on the back, "I don't care." Do you? Right, right. right that was yeah. it. Was a pile of the, no. I'm kidding. Yeah, but everybody, <laughs> right? I mean, like, like so Does the, everybody so get the, that? Yeah, but all of oh, I got it. I got it. All the communities that you're operating in, right? They all have global means of communications. Your employees have global means of communications. Your shareholders do. Your customers. Your suppliers other governments, they all have global, they can communicate globally in an instant over the thing that you did or failed to do. And that's really challenging to deal with. And so preparing for that and preparing your own internal systems for dealing with that and being ready for it to jump on it. And it's a really big challenge for, um, for firms. And then you do it in an environment where Maybe people people don't believe you. Getting back to the credibility uh, part, you have. Do people even believe you when you say these things? So, how you do it, and are you doing it with evidence, is is more important. Well, than and I be. think the more factual, straight, less messagey, you know, the biggest challenge in companies is lawyers. You know, I mean, and I I had a lot of good friends when I was working at GE that were lawyers. I was good friends with the general counsel, but like, you know, that's the one time that the boss used to get mad at me when it was like I checked something with a lawyer, and it was like, you know, just the more straight you can be, fast, straight, direct, the more people I think will believe you, right? Yeah, Um, I think I think you have to, and and again, I I mean, people laugh at this sometimes because we always say like, you know, you got to come with evidence. You know, you have to bring evidence to back up the thing that you're saying. And in D.C., that's like sounds like a punchline. Like, are we really in a, you know, yeah. we, we were in a kind of an evidence free zone yeah. in D.C. But I don't think that's true. I still think that the the, the, the predominant direction of where of where media is going and the most of the journalists we're dealing with still want that, desire it, rely on it. They're educated by it. You, you do gain credibility with them if you're if you're coming with evidence not just saying stuff but you got to show it also you have to bring something that shows and proves what you're saying yeah i mean you brought up employees tony and jake i mean what my experience employees were a massive reason we made big reputation decisions at the company when i was at ge i mean that was for the one way that imelt and i used to sit down we'd made a lot of decisions like putting out a statement against the executive order and immigration things like that that were considered risky but the employee base we have 300,000 employees in 180 countries and it was important to our saudi co- colleagues or it was important to our colleagues in iraq which we had a lot of or was so we knew that the right thing to do is the right thing to do for that reason so i mean i think the employees are louder than ever in today's world and ceo are listening to them more and more. Is that your experience? Well, yeah, you don't see a lot of leadership sometimes in, in Washington. And so when when these when these issues flare up, a lot of times the employees look for the nearest, you know, authority figure might be their boss and they want their authority that authority figure to speak up. And so if he or she doesn't weigh in, they feel as though somehow they're they're being calculating or sacrificing. So, you know, so we've waited at our firm on issues as early days on marriage equality, which was quite controversial, but not that controversial amongst our employees, uh, certainly on immigration and other things. And I think I think it's, it's a little hard to draw that line because there are a lot of issues people are passionate about. And I'm not sure. Can't weigh in on everything. Yeah, the CEO does, can't weigh in on everything. And every CEO is going to draw that line differently. But I think the most important thing is that 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 person has a voice and understands what matters to the employees and that, you know, they recognize that there's some expectation that that someone speaks to these issues when it's affecting people. Yeah, and most companies, 
Uh, I'm not sure if a you know if a bank is different. I've never worked at a bank, but most companies, I mean, people don't go to work for margins. People want to get up and go to a place where they feel like their values are aligned with the place they go to. It's their community and that they're working on something that matters. Now, whatever that version of it is, it could be you're making a tool that you think is going to help somebody build a house. It, do, it couldn't, you know, it doesn't have to be something fancy. But I think if you never speak on anything, then people are like, where am I working? Look, if you, I worked at a big manufacturing company, too. And, and in the, a lot of times that plant is the focus of the town. I mean, it's the main employer. And, and so that plant manager has a moral authority in the town. And if, if there were a natural disaster in the town, you'd expect the business to step up. Similarly, if there's some issue that's social in nature, you would expect that company to step up too. I mean, that that's just comes with being a, a, a big employer uh, in, in, in the town. So we're in New York. It's a local. big city yeah, and there's a lot local. of people, but, you know, but people still go to work in a certain place every day and they look to the people that they work with for leadership. So let's let's move to the fourth estate and the uh, protection of, if you want to talk about that. So, what's the role that we all have, uh, even if you're if you're in the private sector, of helping journalists right now? When a CEO comes to you and is railing, you know, crazy about some story, and what I always did was say, so tell me exactly what's wrong with it. You know, what factually is not lining up for you? Because I'm happy to fight, but I just want to make sure. You know, I just want to understand exactly what the pieces are that aren't, you know, are wrong. And, you know, 50 percent of the time you get kind of like, ah, and walk out the door because it's it's more the they just don't like it. But it's not. So I think standing up as much as we can to help explain why stories happen the way they did and what matters and what doesn't. I don't know. Is mm-hmm. How can we help, you know? Well, I think there's two different ways to look at a job like that, um, at a communications job. And I think it's true whether you're in the private sector or on a political campaign or in government. You're either there to uh, communicate on behalf of your company or your boss to the media in a way that facilitates the media to do their jobs. Or you're there to shut down the ability for the media to understand what's going on inside wherever it is you're working. To be good at your job, you have to understand and appreciate the role of the fourth estate in this country, in our democracy, in uh, the workings of our economy, in the workings of our government, whatever it is. There is a role. And to, to do your job well, you have to understand that you're wearing two hats. Helping your boss understand, like you said, Deirdre, what the press role is there to do, but then also representing, you know, your company or your boss or your president in a way that ensures that accurate information is being relayed um, and that journalists are doing their job. We do need journalists to do their job right now, whether uh, it's covering the Trump White House or the strength of the economy. There is a sunshine element to this that we all benefit from. Yeah. So you're a contributor now for ABC. Tony's mm-hmm. a contributor in CNBC. So do they do they think we all lie? Do they think to that the we're flax? We're getting back to the title as flack you, right? Do they think we <laughs> do they think we're all flax and that we lie and I know for a fact they don't believe that at CNBC about me and um most of their, uh, all of our contributors, all of our fine contributors at, uh, the, in the CNBC family, maybe the greater <laughs> NBC family. But I get that question a lot. I mean, Chip Reed and I, Chip is a is White House, CBS White House correspondent, and I, we co-taught a class at Georgetown that was uh, the White House and the press. And uh, it was a wonderful class because we could teach it from both 
sides of the desk. We sort of alternately have to answer that question a lot from students, and I get it. I get it. You know, lots of other places from people who only watch, you know, some of these TV shows about Washington. About you know, well, what what do you do when you have to lie? And we say, well, we would never lie. I mean, we would never lie to a reporter. I mean, it, it would be the the end of us. It would be the end of our reputation. It would be the end of our relationship, our credibility. We could just wouldn't do it. And so that's not what happens. But they come in with this sort of built-in sense that, well, your job as a spokesperson is actually to lie. It's to misrepresent things in order to get through some some kind of uh, issue or to pump something up. And that's anecdotal. But I do think there's, you know, a sort of a broad view out there that there are a lot of people just saying stuff. And and I think that's, you know, that's destructive because it's not great for spokespeople. If that's the reputation that we have, that we spin or we make stuff up or just say things or out and out lie. It's not great for the media if people believe, well, they're just taking that stuff and running with it. What are, you know, there's a misunderstanding of what sourcing is at a traditional, uh, you know, news organization and the protections around that. And so, so I think there's just, there's just a lot of misunderstanding. I don't think it's helped much by what people are seeing in Hollywood and TV, right? I think that's actually, it's actually hurt because they don't understand. It. Look, some of the most trusting relationships. Well, and every female I, journalist right now sleeps with everybody that they. Of course, every that's the only way they get they anywhere, right? Everything, right? So yeah, I don't. Yeah, know. but, but sure some of the most trusting, right some of the most trusting, <laughs> credible relationships I have, are have been with reporters, right? Really, really big, important things that uh, the 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 care and handling of a piece of information was only bound by our trust for each other. That's it. There's no law. There's no rule. There's no 8K filing or 10K filing. But that's built up over time, right? Micro interactions where you do something with somebody, you do something with somebody, and they they sort of realize they can trust you. Yeah, but to me as a professional, that's my most. That's one of my most currency. It's one of my most important assets that I have is that I can tell this reporter, I know what you think you have. I know you want to go run with that, but you're not going the right way. Trust me, it's wrong. If you print that, it's you're going to be wrong. Right. And if they for them to believe me and say, okay, I get it. And when we'll figure out how to deal with it after that. But that ability to say to them, trust me, and I'm looking out for me, right? But I'm also looking out for you. Yeah, you too. don't want to you want to yeah. run with something that's wrong, yep. right? I mean, Jake, I know you have very deep reporter relationships you have for many years, right? So what's your what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a difficult time for the media, just to be to be honest, on a number of fronts. One is their business model's been eroded by social media, and, and basically the social media giants have picked up every incremental dollar of revenue in the industry and taken it from. So their business model's under attack. Second, I mean, just 20 years ago when I was in Washington, very few people had access to information, and the editors and reporters played a huge role in deciding what people learned about what was happening in Washington. The political editor of, of CBS or NBC. Very powerful the, job. Very powerful job. The editor of the New York Times, the Washington editor, had an enormous amount of power to decide what you learned about everything that was going on in Washington because they were there. They were talking to the government officials. They were seeing, they were at the cocktail parties, mm-hmm. chattering with them behind the scenes. They were in the green room, at meet the press, chattering with them. And so all of a sudden, Everyone has that information if they have a smartphone and they can look it up in a second. So you've got a huge erosion of your monopoly at some level on deciding what information is important. Your business model has gone to shred. 
and you're under attack from everyone from like corporate CEOs to the president of the United States. I mean, it's not a good environment and it's not clear what the future is. Now, I'm optimistic. I think it's a, I, I mean, I agree with everything Stephanie said and, and, and Tony said about the critical role they play in our society. Um, but I think they're going to have to figure out a way to continue to add value amidst all the noise. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of them have moved towards catering to their base, just like politicians have, right? And as they go to a subscription model for their revenue, that temptation is going to be even stronger, right? And we saw it this past week with The New Yorker, which is a great magazine, Dave Remnick, who's one of the best editors, caving to pressure for after inviting Steve Bannon to think from his employees and the like. That's not the path uh, to success, because if you just want to cater to your own audience and reinforce their worldview, which I happen to share, but but you want to just um, reinforce their worldviews, that's not that's not the future in in the media, and everyone's just going to be catering to a smaller and smaller slice of you know it's so the it, audience, and I yeah. think there needs to be a more honest dialogue about that because I think reporters, a lot of them, have a somewhat antiquated view of the purity of their profession and their immunity to commercial pressure. And it's just not true. It's a great point. But bringing up the New Yorker point actually is a good insight for people on how it works for all of us. Because you never know. I'm always loath to criticize people's decisions from the outside, right? Because you just never know what was actually going down, sitting in there, how bad the internal uproar was, how many speakers they actually were going to lose. So ultimately, there's no New Yorker festival. I'm not saying they did the right thing, because I think you, disinviting is like nearly impossible. You give the other guy the plat- bigger platform it with his base, right? Yeah. And you make him a martyr. But it's just interesting just for people to understand. Like, there is, there's, these decisions are never black and white. Mm-hmm. So, Stephanie, on it, what's the difference between PR and propaganda? <laughs> I'll give you an easy one. That's not a, do you want to go get Edward Bernays' 1954 book on propaganda? And you can, like, <laughs> uh, well, what is the difference between PR and propaganda? Dictators over for throughout history have Who's behind practiced it, propaganda, right? What they're trying yeah. to convince people of, whether it's uh, reaching for the lowest common denominator or uh, transparency and in information. You know, it depends on two things, who, who the messenger is and who they're trying to messenger to. For people in communications and PR, Tony and I are in the consulting business. I'm sure we've both have had clients come to us um, wanting to hire us to do things that made us uncomfortable. And maybe it, border, it was borderline propaganda, and we said no to it. Uh, there are politicians that we probably have chosen not to work for because we don't believe in what they're doing or saying or evangelizing for the most basic sense of public relations. It's it's about standing up for who your client is, standing up for the policy that you're espousing and based in your core beliefs. And propagandizing is trying to convince people to do something that may be against their interest. Yeah. I mean, there's a really interesting book, I'm going to forget the name of the writer, maybe one of you knows, called Notes in a Foreign Country that was written by a female journalist whose name I'm forgetting. It's a fairly recent book within the last year. And really, though, throughout history, the United States of America has done a ton of propaganda, right, all over the world, right? I mean, it's really espousing through radio and other... Sure, voice of democracy. Espousing the interests of the United States. Um, So it's interesting to think about it with that critical lens of what we view through 
the American culture and how we grew up as not propaganda because it's our values that we're pushing in the world, but other people do view as propaganda. It's an interesting thing to think about. It's not as though the United States has never tried to interfere in a foreign election. Right. right? That's happened before, and I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I've been out of the government for a while. I'm not privy to top secret information, but I wouldn't be surprised. My security hasn't been taken away (laughs) as far as I know, but I'm not exercising it either. But I wouldn't be surprised if if the United States government in some parts of the world were using social media to influence uh, elections. So, I mean, look, that's, that's part and parcel of the information age that we're living in right now. But I do think in our jobs, we can't help but be interacting with the press. We can't help but be the advocates for transparency with our clients, our our companies, our, our the politicians we work with. I think politicians sort of take that for granted. Companies maybe less so. I think the trick really is a mismatch in time. Like right now, everyone wants everything, reporters, the public in real time. And most companies want to preserve and most politicians want to preserve the ability to deliberate, think, have hear a bunch of different views. Understandable. And if, and if every single view and every single idea is being immediately broadcast, as it is sort of in this White House, to the public, it makes makes your life very hard. It makes it very hard to make decisions. Yeah, I, I don't great. think the answer, by the way, is to not be broadcasting constantly also. I think if it, I, mean, I, I have no interest in going back into uh, government or any of the, and the, the roles I, I, I had in government. But if I were to advise or to go in, it would be to speak, communicate a lot more and to use all these. So I don't think the answer is, well, presidents shouldn't, the next president should, ought not Can't put tweet. the genie back in the bottle. No. You could do it better and you can do it in... Uh, President uh, Obama tweeted. I mean, it, kind of. It, Someone it, tweeted. Yeah, yeah, he well, signed off on every tweet. His photos. He did. Absolutely. But his use of photos yeah. was interesting because you could argue at some level propaganda, right? He was very carefully curated photos. They never put out a beautiful, a, yes, a beautiful photos that were really well done. And you know, and the White House photographers who who, who do, do a terrific job. On the other hand, it's highly curated, and the people who cover the White House, the photographers, wanted those shots themselves and wanted to get the real uh, shot. And, you know, so that debate goes on in every White House. I mean, this White House, it's reached an extreme. Yeah. But but there's no question that future presidents will use the same tool. Absolutely. I think I think what we've I think we've we learned though but because of this the, the just like the sea of information and the and the okay, so take pictures for an example, right? There was a time when a picture could define a moment, maybe even a presidency or an event. Right? There's so many pictures, right? Everybody's taking pictures. There are blizzards of, of pictures. Like, don't worry so much about any particular picture, or any particular thing that was said. You still have to try to do it well, but don't worry that there was a a picture that if a president had an event, and uh, you know it's whatever a turkey pardoning, and you know, and you've got the funny face that the president made, and it's used in some context. That kind of thing is going to happen. Trying to control all of that is really hard to do, right? Just don't worry about it so much. You can do more events. You could have more, you know, more. There, you could use all of the tools in better ways. But don't worry. Don't obsess so much over any one particular. Well, part by of the it. way, you can get better pictures and get more when you're doing good things. Right. So if well, you're going to, if well, you're going to visit, if you're going to visit yeah. troops, let's pick it yeah. in a in in a war zone where we have you know men and women fighting, and there's going to be pictures of you hugging them. That's a good picture, whether you look fat, skinny, good, bad. Good hair, bad hair, right? Oh, so, I totally, mean, I think yeah. you could put yourself in more situations. And I think President Obama was, I know Pete Souza's 
is brilliant, but President Obama was in a lot of situations hugging kids and, you know, that's a big, that's the, the look. And, I mean, yeah. that's a, this is what we tell our kids, right? Yeah. I mean, is be good, right? Yeah. Do good and be good yeah. and don't do, don't do the, uh, you know, bad things and you won't have to worry about it. And I think obviously that's a, this is a lesson for companies, you know, don't try to hide the stuff. I and mean, we've, you know, yeah, you don't use, do you, it. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Do well when when you good. do it, yeah, you know, go fast. Be, be, Extra transparent yes. yeah. about it. Yeah. Extra transparent. Don't hunker down where you know lawyers end up yeah. taking you. Right. Let's bring like more light on it and extra transparency and extra effort to show what you're doing and who you are and um, go go the other way. Yeah. Uh, because there's there actually is there's more uh, demand for it also. So totally, just, yeah. totally. So I could do this for three hours, mm. but uh, everybody has stuff to do. So, but let's close with the big question. Right? Is uh, I'll start with you, Jake. When do you quit? Well, when you have our job. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's, you know, you quit when you're just not comfortable um, doing what, uh, you know, what, what you're brought on to do. Look, I worked for Bill Clinton for eight years. We had a lot of rough moments at the White House. But I never for once thought that anyone told me to do anything that I didn't feel comfortable doing. I mean, we had a lot of fights about, should we say this? Should we say that? Should we say this now? Should we say this later? There were times when the president you know, lied about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Now, I didn't happen to have to be the spokesperson on that. That would have been awful. But luckily, some of my colleagues took the brunt of that. When If you're not comfortable speaking on behalf of your client, whether your client's the president of the United States or, you know, the barbershop down the street, then then you quit. Um, and, and it's simple as that. There are plenty of good jobs and you don't need to work for someone who's asking you to do things that don't make but you But a lot of people right. don't quit, right? No. I mean, but I think right now what you're seeing, particularly in this administration, I think I talked to a number of people who were talked to about the, the Sean Spicer job. And I just think for the reasons we discussed at the beginning of this program, they just found it extremely hard to envision doing that job and keeping their dignity and honor intact. And, and so they took a pass. So people so, turn, turn I think people down. are turning yeah. jobs down left yeah. and right. Yeah. It's a real problem if you're the on-the-record spokesperson. I think there's a, a strong argument to be made, certainly early in the administration, that that smart people who could operate behind the scenes should go in and help this president understand the job and do the job right. And I, I was a big advocate for a couple of my former colleagues who went in and did that. And, you know, they had mixed experiences, uh, to say the least. But I hope it doesn't get to the point, sort of at the tail end of, of some uh, of, you know, the Nixon administration, particularly where no one really wants to work uh, in this White House because you need quality people sure. there. But it's hard to recommend sure. right now that anyone take a job where they're forced to talk to media every day on the record and 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 do this job it's just it's just impossible so when do you quit tony uh well I, you know so it's funny i was uh i became a big fan of term limits i was not a fan of term limits before and uh but you know but when i got through sort of the, the end i i don't think i would have quit the white house under any circumstances actually that's not true if i'd been asked to do something that i was uncomfortable with there's no question i would have walked away from it um I think most people I know would also. There are people who uh, who won't, and they can, um, you know, they can rationalize just about anything. But we know right and wrong, right? You know what kind of person you are. You know if you're being asked to uh, represent something that isn't accurate. Um, you know, you need to walk away from that. Now, you sometimes have to do education internally to people who are asking you to do certain things that are closer to the edge than than you would want because there are people who really don't understand mm -hmm. these points and the, the, some of the concepts that we're talking about. They really and truly don't understand them. And so you have to educate your 
uh, your people internally sometimes and help them to understand, if they still persist and want to go uh, in a direction that you're uncomfortable with, then you you walk away from it. None of these jobs. Look, we've we've had these jobs. They're great jobs. I love them. I'd have no trouble walking away from any one of them. It would be easy to do, uh, not hard at all. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's a job, and you still have to go live with yourself, and you got to go see your kids. Isn't the and... greatest tip to get your finances in order and have financial security? And that doesn't mean you got to be a multimillionaire, but it means like you know when you know that you know if some someday when something happens, you can walk and not totally. You know, I always said I, this is a, this is true. I always had a cardboard box next to my desk, and I never kept so much stuff around that I couldn't fill that box and walk out if I had to, because I never wanted to be a guy who had to come back and get the box, right? Oh, that's so sad, <laughs> <Yeah>. Tony. <laughs> like, like, either if I have to leave on someone else's terms or my own terms, yeah. I'm walking out with my box. And, you know, yeah. uh, and so, uh, but I was, I was it's like, like, yes, take care of yourself. We, we know right and wrong. We, you know, you know put your, never put yourself in compromising situations. The education part of it, I think, is super important. Teach people. Uh, if they don't understand right and wrong, teach it, uh, teach it to them, and yeah, help them. demonstrate and, for the absolutely for the youngins. Yeah. What about you, Stephanie? When do you quit? Well, I think that nobody goes into these jobs without knowing what they're going to be asked to do, because for these, you know, the jobs that we've had at the White House, or uh, for the chief communications officers at uh, big corporations. We know who the CEO is. We know who the president is. We know what their reputations are. So you go into these jobs with your eyes wide open. So if you get to the point where you're all of a sudden surprised that somebody's asking you to do something you're not comfortable with or to lie, we all remember the day where you get to that point in your career where you feel comfortable just walking away. You you will, you know, whatever consequences you think you may suffer, you know you will get through it. That's an important point to get to in your career, and there's nothing more liberating. You know, liberating and scary. Liberating and scary, empowering mm-hmm. um, to know, you know, I, I'm not going to say who used to say this, but a former boss of mine used to say, Stephanie, I want you around because I know that you don't need to be around. You can go do something else. So I want you around because I know you're going to tell me the truth. And that's an, that's that's a an secure imp- person, but yes, important yes, yeah. place to be in your career. But, you know, at the, we've all said this in different ways. Um, the, at what point do you quit? You know, we're, we're all parents. The point where you cannot explain <laughs> with a straight face uh, in, a, in a way that you want your kid to emulate what you do for a living. Uh, when you're not proud of that, when you, you can't see yourself standing in front of your kid's class telling them what you do on a daily basis, then then it's time to quit. Yeah. Well, my kids are still, uh, you know, they saw me do a TV spot and still can't figure out. And my oldest said, so this is what you do. You talk a lot. Is that what you do, Mom? You just talk? <laughs> That's pretty much it. So we'll leave it on that note. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> you just talk a lot. Yes, yeah. pretty much. Okay. Thanks, guys, so much. That was really fun. Thank you very much. And thanks for being on Flack U. Thank you. Thank you.